Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Jeremy Hammond. Jeremy is an independent journalist whose work focuses on exposing dangerous mainstream propaganda that serves to manufacture consent for criminal government policies. So he's going to feel very much at home at this podcast, as I'm sure our listeners will agree. He's written about a broad range of topics all of whom happen to be up our alley. So he's written about U.S. foreign policy, the role of the Federal Reserve in the economy, and public health policies. His books include Obstacle to Peace, the U.S. role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Ron Paul versus Paul Krugman, Austrian versus Keynesian economics in the financial crisis, and The War on Informed Consent. 
You can find his writings and sign up for his newsletter on jeremyrhammond.com. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor. Thank you for having me on. I've been following Jeremy's work for quite a while. I don't know how I stumbled across you on Twitter a long time ago and found your work very, very informative. And uh, this has been a long time coming. I should have invited you on a long time ago, um, but better late than never, I guess. Um, and today we're, you know, we have so much to be talking about in terms of economics and public health and all of these issues. But for today's episode, we're going to focus on uh, something that has become quite central in most discussions around the world recently, and that is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Jeremy's written extensively about this, about the history of the conflict and the most uh, and more recent developments. And he's a very thorough researcher who's done a great job in outlining a lot of these, uh, a lot of the problems and the misconceptions that happen in that conflict. So I guess we could just start with going back in time, go way back, and start back in the discussing the history of the conflict. Jeremy, when do you think this conflict really started? When would you pin as the start of the conflict? Most people generally, when they think the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, they think, oh, well, desert Middle East people have been at each other's throats for thousands of years. Nothing's going to change. It's always going to be that case. I don't think you and I agree with that. It's a lot more recent, right? Yes, it is more recent. Um, <clears throat> really, the the conflict began with the development of the modern political movement of Zionism, which is a select secular movement um, arising in Europe. Its founder, father, the father of modern Zionism, is it was Theodore Herzl who wrote the book, The Jewish State, um, advocating the establishment of a, a, a Jewish state. Um, and they had kind of selected Palestine as the location where they wanted to establish the Jewish state. And so what happened was it, during World War One, we all have heard about the Balfour Declaration which was in 1917. Actually, the initial draft of that was written by Lord Lionel Rothschild the of the famous banking family, who was a representative of the Zionist movement. And so he drafted the, 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 first, <laughs> the first edition of that document. And it, it went through a number of revisions back and forth between Lord Ar- Arthur Balfour, who was the uh, British foreign minister, um, until finally it, it became what we know as the Balfour Declaration, in which uh, Britain committed itself promised um, support for the Zionist project, um, which in the original draft was to reconstitute Palestine into a Jewish national home, which was a euphemism for a Jewish state. Um, and in the final draft, it was to to establish uh, that the British would support the establishment of a Jewish national home, quote, in Palestine, unquote, um, which was as far as they were willing to go, because, of course, the British also, and there were three purposes for the for the Balfour Declaration. Number one, the British wanted to support the Zionist project to establish um, its sphere of influence in the Middle East. If it, if it could support the establishment of this Jewish state that would be close to the West, um, it would have, you know, this base in the Middle East. That was one. Two was um, Palestine, up until that time, had actually been a, a refuge for Jews. Um, particularly relative to the rampant anti-Semitism in Europe. And that was a second reason for for Europeans to support the Zionist movement, because if they could rid their countries of Jews, they were fine with that. It was rampant anti-Semitism. A third reason was that the British wanted Jewish support for the war effort, including, of course, from the from the bankers. Um, it, but at the same time, they had to juggle their interests, and, and they also wanted Arab support 
for the war effort. And, and they promised in, to that end, they promised the Arabs that they would support in, their independence from the Ottoman Empire and from Turkish rule, um, which, of course, they, they broke that promise. And so what happened after World War I was that um, Britain enforced a belligerent occupation of Palestine for the specific purpose of denying um, the Palestinians their right to self-determination in order to facilitate um, the Zionist project by, uh, you know, enabling uh, mass immigration of Jews from Europe. So at the, at the start of that, the population of, of Palestine was 90% Arab. So there was 80% was Muslim Arabs and about 10% was Christian Arabs and about 10% was indigenous Jewish population. Um, Jews and, and Arabs had gotten along, as I mentioned, well uh, in, you know, they had amicable relations in Palestine up until that time. Um, and of course, we always hear, you know, that, that during the mandate period that there were these outbreaks of violence, Arab, Arab massacres of Jews, 1920, 1921, um, the, the Hebron massacre in 1929. And so um, the Zionists like to point to this and, and argue that the, that the root cause of the problem is inherent anti-Semitism and Arab hatred of Jews, but that's just not the case. Um, in fact, the British looked at each of those outbreaks of violence during the, their, their occupation of Palestine, the mandate period. Um, they had commissions of inquiry in, into each one of those. And every time they um, inquired into the causes of the outbreak of violence, they determined that there was no inherent Arab anti-Semitism. They pointed out that Jews and Arabs were getting along fine as neighbors. Um, and that the problem was that, that the Arabs had an increasing awareness of how the Zionist movement aimed to dispossess them of their land and ultimately to expel them, um, which is precisely what the policies of the of the Zionist organization were aimed at accomplishing. And in fact, the British even pointed out uh, the, the stark difference, the stark contrast in Arab-Jewish relations in non-Zionist organization colonies. So there were other colonies, um, Jewish you know, settlements in, in Palestine that were not under the, the Zionist organization. And the British pointed out how in these colonies, Arabs and Jews got along fine. In fact, you could go through the colonies and see Jews and Arabs sitting on porches, you know, talking to each other, having friendly relations. Arabs could find employment in these non-Zionist organization colonies. There was a, just a completely different relationship between Jews and Arabs in these colonies, it, contrasting with Zionist organization where they would um, buy up land by exploiting feudalistic Ottoman land laws that disenfranchised the, the rightful owners and homesteaders of, of the land, um, oftentimes involving expulsions after purchasing the, the land from, you know, absentee landlords under this feudalistic Ottoman land laws, uh, and then oftentimes expelling the inhabitants, including whole villages being expelled from the land. And then they were denied employment uh, on any of the land that was purchased by the Zionist organization uh, and the Jewish National Fund. And so uh, they they were already being, you know, they had already had their right to self-determination denied by the British occupiers. And they were seeing that they were being expelled from land in which they were the rightful inhabitants. Um, and then, of course, it was a, a central tenet of Zionist thought particularly after 1937 with the Peel Commission report, where it recommended uh, a partition, which would result, which would um, require what they called compulsory transfer of uh, hundreds of thousands of Arabs out of the territory of where they had envisioned the Jewish state to be. Um, and so from that point onwards, it was just, it was just an open 
ideology, you know, in, in an open belief among the Zionist leadership, including David Ben-Gurion, that that was the solution that there needed ultimately to be a compulsory transfer. In other words, ethnic cleansing, um, which is precisely how the state of Israel came into existence. There's a, there's a mythical belief that Israel was created by the United Nations. This is untrue. This is a reference to the uh, UN General Assembly Resolution 181, which adopted the majority recommendation for a partition plan. It recommended that that plan be taken under consideration by the Security Council. It did go to the Security Council, and that's where it died. Um, the, the UN Security Council recognized that it had no authority to partition Palestine against the will of the majority of its inhabitants. The Arabs were advocating there was a minority recommendation in, in that plan as well, because there was a what, the, what was called the UN Special Committee on Palestine, UNSCOP. Um, there was a, both a majority and a minority recommendation. And the minority recommendation of that, that subcommittee was essentially what the Arabs had been proposing, which was a single democratic state with a constitution guaranteeing equal rights of all citizens, and so protecting the rights of the minority of minority Jewish population. The partition plan was in, inherently inequitable at the time. By the end of the mandate, which expired on May 14th, 1948, by the end of the mandate, the Jews had acquired, managed to acquire less than 7% of the land in Palestine. Arabs owned more land in every single district in Palestine. Um, Arabs were still the majority. The, the Jewish population um, had increased to about a third of the population of Palestine by the end of the mandate, um, but they were still the minority. And the partition plan nevertheless recommended that the Jewish state be constituted from 55% of the of the territory of Palestine, while the Arabs would get about 44% of the land, with Jerusalem being you know kind of under international um, control. And so it was. It was inherently inequitable this partition plan, and it was. Yeah, well, well, let's let's uh, let's take a step back. We'll we'll get to the partition. There's still uh, plenty of ground to cover before that. I think um, getting back to the uh, beginning of the Zionist movement, I think two underrated aspects of Zionism, which are kind of brushed aside under the carpet uh, in modern uh, hagiographic. Uh, telling of the story, which is essentially what most people are familiar with if you've uh, come across this in uh, most Western literature. Uh, there's a huge amount of, number one, Jewish anti-Zionism. Uh, when Zionism came along, it was not popular in particular among religious Jews. It was popular amongst people like Herzl and people like the Rothschild family who were very secular and largely atheist uh, Jews who weren't, weren't really religious about it. And I think another aspect that's underrated and, and uh, forgotten is the extent of Zionist anti-Semitism and the extent of support for anti-Semitism, uh, for Zionism from anti-Semites, both Jews and non-Jews. I think the my first exposure to anti-Semitic ideas was reading Theodore Herzl's uh, Jewish State, his book, when I in my first year in college. I went through a period where I read a lot of Zionist literature, starting with Herzl all the way down to uh, Netanyahu's uh, uh, Place Under the Sun and um, passing by pretty much most major Zionist leaders. And I was truly struck at that time by the extent of European anti-Semitism because it was not something that I was very familiar with. But Herzl talks about the Dreyfus case in France, and he talks about all of the problems. And one um, underrated fact that people don't really mention is that Zionism was Herzl's plan B. His plan A was assimilation. 
he wanted to lead the Jews to go to the Pope and convert the Jews en masse to Catholicism and just be done with this whole idea of the Jewish problem. And, the, and he, he, he truly was, I know this is a term that is extremely overused today, but Herzl truly was the original self-hating Jew. He did not like the idea of Jews in Europe and the way the Jews existed. And he thought the solution for that is to just assimilate them into European society. And then he switched from that to Zionism because he thought um, there's just no way around anti-Semitism and there's no way for Jews to be assimilated. So then he switched to the idea of a Jewish state. I think you've also written about the extent of support that Zionism got from anti-Semites, particularly in Britain. Lord Balfour, in particular, who gave the Balfour Declaration, he was a raging anti-Semite and the motivation for him to support the creation of a state of uh, for Jews was that he didn't want the Jews to come to Britain, right? Yeah, these are all really excellent points. Um, and I'm glad, glad you we go back to it before we move on. Um, yeah, that the, the, when the Zionist movement arose, it was widely opposed by Orthodox Jews because they viewed it as heretical because, you know, in their minds, their interpretation of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, which the Christians refer to as the Old Testament, um, in, in their interpretation, the Jews were under an exile and they were not allowed to, you know, that, that there was a prophecy that Israel would be reconstituted, but they had to await the coming of the Messiah before that, that could happen. They had to await the Messiah. And so in their view, this, this secular political movement of Zionism was heretical because it was an effort by, by men to defy God's will and reestablish Israel on their own in defiance of God. So it was utterly heretical to the Orthodox Jewish community. Um, so they were actually, yes, the, 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 it, by and large, the, the Orthodox Jewish community was, was anti-Zionist. And to this day, there remain Orthodox Jews who are anti-Zionist um, and who support and defend Palestinians' rights and call for an end to the occupation and oppose, oppose Israel as a Jewish supremacist state. Um, and so this is really underappreciated, as, as, you, as you mentioned. Um, another aspect of that, though, is, is also Christian Zionism, which there's also, you know, a, a large element of anti-Semitism there, you know, especially among really radical, what they call evangelist, evangelist Christians who believe this interpretation of the Bible. Also quite heretical, in a sense, because they support the Jewish supremacist state, the Zionist regime. And they support, you know, for example, um, they have Christian Zionists in Texas had sent red heifers, four red heifers to what's called the Temple Institute in Israel, which is an organization of extremist Orthodox Jews uh, of the Zionist um, type of Orthodox Jews who want to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque in in East Jerusalem and the temple um, on what the Jews call the Temple Mount uh, and the Dome of the Rock, the shrine in order to rebuild the Jewish temple, the, the third Jewish temple there. And so to do this, because, uh, you know, uh, under Jewish tradition, uh, Jewish religion, the belief is that, you know, Jews are not allowed to enter the Temple Mount area in an unclean state. And so there's a purification ritual involving the sacrifice of, a, of a, an unblemished red heifer that must occur for them to be able to return to rebuild the Jewish temple. And so um, weeks before the 10-7 atrocities committed by Hamas against Israeli civilians, um, the Temple Institute had announced its acquisition 
of red heifers and its intention, if one of them is found to be unblemished when it comes of age, that uh, they're going to sacrifice one of them and, and proceed um, with this plan. And so you have, this, you have this strange relationship between Christian Zionists who are literally trying to bring about Armageddon, right? This is so all of this is, and that, is you know, a small little detail here is that before yeah. Armageddon happens, there's going to be a conflagration in which world war starts, right? And the Jews die uh, in this world war, right? Just a small little detail that they anticipate, um, right? Exactly. And this is what I mean about the, the anti Semitic nature of it because they're literally trying to bring about a situation in which they know that there's going to be uh, that most of the world's Jews are going to be slaughtered. And in, in their interpretation, all but 144,000 are going to be killed in this, you know, end, war of end times. And so you have this really strange um, kind of alliance between the Christian Zionists and the um, radical extremist settler community in Israel. And so that's another aspect. And also just the influence of, of Christian Zionism on U.S. foreign policy is an underappreciated aspect of the conflict because, you know, we often hear about the, the influence of the Israel lobby. Um, and so in my mind, you know, to sometimes the, the, the term Israel lobby is used to kind of encompass, you know, anyone who supports Israel. But to, to me, that's not that's kind of a, a misuse of the term lobby. You know, when I think of a lobby, I think of like APAC, you know, the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee, something like this, you know, where they actually send lobbyists to Washington to to try to influence policy, which is quite different from from just, you know, American voters and constituents who are supportive of Israel and they have this belief that you know, the U S must support Israel no matter what. And it's just unconditional support for Israel, regardless of, of Israel's crimes against the Palestinians. And so uh, to me, this is a much bigger influence than what they call the Israel lobby on U S foreign policy, not, not to downplay the influence of the, of the lobby. Um, but, but the Christian Zionist Zionist influence, I think is much larger and uh, much more influential and it's really hardly ever talked about. It's an aspect of the conflict that gets very little attention. Yeah, and I think the really dangerous thing about it is how it um, essentially, it, it's a symbiotic relationship between the worst elements of Israeli militarism and the worst elements of uh, American foreign policy, where these quite <laughs> reckless and insane uh, religious beliefs lead people to want to actively ferment a world war i mean that's that's the plan and so when when these people act they're acting with the intention of starting a world war which is something to keep in mind because that's that's why we get all of that money being given to israel every year and that's why you get all these weapons being given to israel it's i mean sure it is to defend israel but it's really more about continuing to keep the fire going, continuing to add more and more fuel to the fire so that it can, uh, the conflict can continue to grow and escalate. And so that's why they're highly supportive of things like settlements, which are a guarantee that conflicts uh, is going to intensify because it involves the active dispossession of people and the active ethnic cleansing of people and kicking them out of their homes in order to continue to, um, I mean, I mean, on the one hand, for Israel, it's just, hey, more land. That's great. But I mean, for the evangelical Christians, it's, yay, Armageddon is coming closer. We're going to have all-out uh, massacres uh, happening in the Middle East. And that's going to lead to all of us getting raptured, which is a um, very uh, curious part of uh, Christianity, which uh, somehow emerged over the last hundred years. And Jesus and all the apostles had somehow missed the memo 
about this. Right. And this is when I talk about heresy too, because, you know, this belief that, you know, that they, that they also, many Christian Zionists, not all of them. I mean, there are Christian Zionists who don't believe in the rapture and they don't believe in, in you know, the, the necessity of building the, the third Jewish temple because, you know, their interpretation of the scriptures of the New Testament is that, well, Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach was the, was the, Messiah. He is the Christ, Jesus, the Christ. He is the, he was the temple, right? His, he was the, the new temple. Um, and there was no more need for sacrifices uh, after Jesus because he gave his life as a sacrifice. And so not all Christian Zionists have this, the same beliefs, but they still have the belief that, you know, we must support the U S they must support Israel no matter what. That is just, you know, that's just kind of a common belief among, among Christians in general, even who even among those who aren't like so kind of extremist in their in their views and interpretations and so that yeah that, that's it's a really important there's so many different kind of sects and beliefs and, and we don't want to overgeneralize but yeah it, the 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 extreme you know we hear a lot about islamic extremism we don't hear so much about jewish extremism or christian extremism but those are also um, really important factors uh, to understand. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So getting back to history. So Herzl and the Zionist movement start coming up with this idea. Initially, it's mostly opposed by most Jews worldwide. And I remember there were quite a few um, uh, Zionist, uh, sorry, Jewish congresses and Jewish organizations from all over the world, from the US and Europe, writing to the Zionist Congress and saying, no, no, this is a terrible idea. We don't want to be a part of it. And yet... Also, the indigenous, indigenous Jewish population in, in Palestine was oh, definitely yes. opposed to it. Yes. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Um, you mentioned, I think, I'm not sure if it was you on Twitter who, somebody, who posted something about some of these rabbis in Palestine who had mentioned something, who had written about this. Do you recall the names or the details at this point? Well, there's a number of groups. Um, one that comes immediately to mind is um, Naturi Karta, uh, Rabbi David Weiss, who is kind of the head of that organization, um, uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews who are anti-Zionist. But that's more recent. He's, uh, he, yeah. he's now. He's contemporary. Oh, now. yes. I, th I thought that's what you meant. Yeah, you meant back in, back in the day. Oh, um, hmm. 
I may have posted something about that, but I it's um, it's not coming to my recollection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll dig it up. I'll dig it yeah. up at some point, I guess. I think it was somebody else. I think it was Zachary Foster who posted this. But in any case, and then this idea keeps on snowballing and it keeps on going. And what gives it uh, wings is the British government in 1917 when it comes up with the Balfour Declaration. So what's the background on that? What was the reason there? Why would Britain decide to give Palestine to the Zionist movement? Yeah, well, the, the aims were kind of threefold, as I mentioned. So the first would be to establish the foothold in the Middle East, uh, you know, the, to bring Palestine into the British sphere of influence, as, as they described it. The second was the, the anti-Semitism that we described, where like Balfour was, was they were fine. And also, you know, it wasn't just Germany where anti-Semitism or, uh, was, was raging, but the Germans also supported the Zionist movement <laughs> incidentally. And they had the transfer agreement where they were supportive of the idea of of. German Jews emigrating to Palestine, but that was that was the same throughout Europe. I mean, European governments were were happy for Jews to leave and, and go to Palestine. So there was just this inherent, this you know, deeply rooted anti-Semitism throughout Europe. That was a second factor, and and then support for the war effort was was the third major factor. I think they had this conflicting interests where they were on one hand they were promising Arabs independence, on the other hand they were promising support for this Jewish state. And of course, this was inherently it was impossible. To, to to keep promises the both promises they were inherently contradictory promises and so they ended up violating their promises to the Arabs and to support the Zionist project and of course over time throughout throughout the mandate period increasingly the Arabs became uh, you know uh, there was much unrest and the Arabs began to revolt and have these riots and during the Arab revolt the uh, the British disarmed Palestinian militias while the Zionist community was was arming itself and preparing for for war in november 1947 was when the u.n general assembly passed resolution 181 which is the partition plan recommendation and this was a the zionists viewed this again just like the peel commission recommendation for a compulsory transfer they viewed this as as essentially sanctioning their goal of establishing a jewish state in the place of palestine and so from that point onward, um, ethnic cleansing operations got underway. And we, we're often told there's this kind of this mythical Zionist propaganda narrative that we're, we're indoctrinated in, uh, in the West, which was that the, the, the Arabs just hated Jews, couldn't stand the idea of Jews immigrating to Palestine just due to inherent anti-Semitism. And then when the, when the Jews declared their independence in May 1948, the neighboring Arab states launched a genocidal war of aggression against the new state of Israel to wipe it off the map. Um, but this is simply a historical. What, what happened by the time of, of the end of the mandate, the expiration of the mandate, which was May 14th, 1948, which was the day that the Zionist leadership chose to issue their unilateral declaration of the existence of the state of Israel on land over which they were not sovereign. Um, again, they owned... 7% of the land by that time, the Arabs owned more land. They were the majority. The Arabs' right to self-determination had been rejected. By that time, already over a quarter million Arabs had been ethnically cleansed from their homes. And so the Arabs, neighboring Arab, Arab states intervened into Palestine to try to stop the ongoing ethnic cleansing um, with mostly failure. They mostly failed to do that, and there was limited success so that Jordan managed to hang on to the West Bank. Egypt 
held on to the, the area that became known as the Gaza Strip, which today is populated. Uh, 70% of the inhabitants of Gaza are, are refugees or descendants of refugees of the 1948 war. So it is a essentially a refugee camp um, that has been turned into and, and is what, what uh, Jura Island uh, National Security Council uh, uh, official, the top, the head of the National Security Council in Israel in 2004, what he did, has described as a concentrate, a huge concentration camp. So this is the origin of the Palestinian refugee crisis. This is how Israel came into existence. Resolution 181 neither partitioned Palestine, contrary to popular myth, nor conferred any legal authority to the Zionist leadership for the unilateral declaration of the existence of the state of Israel. Yeah. Israel to this day has no legally defined borders. It's a very important point. Again, again, you're you're jumping ahead way too much. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to keep <laughs> pulling you back. No problem. One point I find interesting about that period of the Balfour Declaration, as I was researching the Fiat Standard, is that Britain was practically bankrupt during World War One. So I was, you know, for writing the Fiat Standard, I wanted to look at the genesis of how the fiat monetary system came about. I, I, I modeled the book on the Bitcoin Standard, and so looking at how Bitcoin in the Bitcoin Standard, I discuss how the Bitcoin protocol was born. So I tried to see what was the analog for the analog version, which is fiat. How did fiat get born? So I looked into World War One when Britain went off the gold standard and how that came about. And it's really fascinating because most people don't know this and most economists don't teach this. Most uh, schools don't discuss this. But Britain effectively went off the gold standard in 1914 and 1915 when the Bank of England told people, look, um, they told the post offices in the banks, take payment in gold and only make payment in paper pounds. And so people had a lot of paper on them and the central bank kept on collecting the gold. And they thought, well, it's only a few months' war that we're going to be um, launching against uh, these uh, Europeans, and we're going to win it, just like we win all these other wars against Indians and Africans and uh, all over the world. And we're the British Empire. And so, remember, that this was called the August Bank Holiday. So they thought it was going to be a quick walk in the park. What they didn't factor in was the fact that all these other European countries had also effectively gone off the gold standard and also thought they could, that they had a, a, a magic ace up their sleeves, which nobody else had. And so that's why the war dragged on. And that's why, really, you look at the history of the war, it was the war about nothing. So some dude in Serbia assassinates the crown prince of Austria. Why would Germany and Britain and France and the US get into murderous? Uh, war for decades, uh, for, well, for years, not decades. Although, arguably, you could say decades because World War One was. <laughs> I, I would say, I argue, I don't think World War One has ended. Um, we're still hoping for the day that it ends. But in any case, the reason that it dragged on so much is because they had the ability to print money. And Britain did that. They printed money and they collected the gold and they used the gold to finance uh, their war effort. And they, uh, the other thing that they did, of course, is they issued bonds. This is, again, this was only revealed in 2017, 100 years later. Some people at the Bank of England were digging through the attics and found uh, the documents of what the Bank of England did back then. And it's really astonishing how little curiosity there has existed amongst historians over the last 100 years about this. But they launched a bond. They sold bonds to fund the war. 
and British people, to their eternal credit, uh, you could say all you want about the British Empire, but I think to the credit of the British people, really the maybe the greatest thing they ever did was that they didn't buy those bonds. They thought, what a silly idea. Why would I invest in a European war that doesn't concern us? They did not buy the bonds. The, they sold only about a third of the bonds. But the Bank of England had other ideas. They went and they got a couple of the employees of the bank, high-ranking employees of the bank, went and bought the two-thirds of the bonds that were out there. And they bought them with a credit line from the Bank of England. And then, of course, the Financial Times, the, you know, the, 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 you can think about it as the um, altcoin uh, media of the day, and it's the shitcoin uh, <laughs> promoters of the day, they went out and they heralded the success of the bonds. We sold those bonds and it was amazing and it was great and the British people are ready for war and we're going to go into war. And so everybody thought, well, all right, they sold the bonds so we can afford to go into war. But they didn't. And what they did was, in fact, they collected the gold from people's hands. And people at that time, you know, they got rallied up because it was war. And at that point, people had a lot more trust in their institutions than they do today. And so they thought this was this was a good thing to do. You know, why would you want to keep the gold with you? We have a war. We need to keep it. Uh, we need we need to give the gov the government the gold. And then suddenly, of course, prices started to rise inexplicably. And now during the war, you could blame the price rises on the war because you know the evil Germans and the evil enemies are making our prices rise. But then the war ended, and the prices continued to rise. And the thing is that in 1917, at that point, I think it's pretty likely that Britain was broke and it was pretty desperate financially. And I think that was what motivated to a large degree. I mean, I'm sure there was an element of the imperial interest in the Middle East and, of course, the element of anti-Semitism. We don't want all those victims of anti-Semitism from Eastern Europe and Germany to come to England. So let's give them a homeland somewhere far away. But also, I think uh, they knew that this would get the Rothschilds on their side rather than on the side of the Germans, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's a huge, major factor. I mean, and the British, again, if you look, go back and look at the British documentation, uh, British reports of the day, the Peel Commission report, and so on, <clears throat> they're quite open about that, 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 about the purpose of the Balfour Declaration being to ensure Jewish support for the, for the war effort. And of course, Look at the Balfour Declaration. It was a letter from Balfour to Lord Rothschild, <laughs> so who was a banker, you know. So yeah, I think that's a, a very they're open about that being the 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 major motive for for that um, policy, which set Britain on a course that ultimately facilitated the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Yeah, and then you know, and in your book, the Bitcoin Standard, you know, if you you discuss that and how how essentially they funded the war effort. Had they taxed people, you know, the the war probably never would have happened, or certainly would have been shorter, wouldn't have gone on so long. Um, but they were able to fund it by essentially stealing the the wealth of of the, their populations through the you know the tax of inflation and, and stealing their purchasing power. And then you, you also talk about how how that really resulted in the Great Depression, <laughs> uh, it, not directly, but certainly um, in, a, in a, at least in an indirect way, um, where the U.S. was trying to support Britain going back to uh, the gold standard on par with 
I guess, with what it was before the war, which was absurd. The Federal Reserve was then inflating and devaluing the dollar, which led to the stock market crash. And then then the response um, in comparison to the 1920 recession, where the government essentially stood by and and did nothing and the market correction was allowed to happen. And so it was a short, sharp um, recession that you know, it was, it was, it was painful, but it was quick and it was over and there was fast recovery compared to what was the great depression, which was made great precisely because of all the intervention, interventionist policies of both Hoover and and Roosevelt. Um, So that was a really fascinating overview of of that period in in the Bitcoin standard of your book. But certainly, certainly when it comes to Palestine, yeah, that was, that was a major reason Yeah, to, to, to secure funding was a major reason for for the Balfour Declaration, and of course the British just uh, really took that idea and ran with it. And so, one of the underrated uh, facts about the conflict is that Palestinian nationhood and Palestinian statehood wasn't really defeated in 1948. So a lot of people think, well, you know, the Palestinians and the Arabs fought a war in 1948 and they lost. It's not really true because it was the British who defeated the Palestinians in 1936 to 1939. It was the longest strike uh, in the uh, interwar period in the world. It was the largest anti-colonial revolt anywhere in the world in the uh, interwar period. And it it lasted for three years. And during that time, the Palestinians were up against the British Empire. And of course, the British Empire was anything but even-handed in its treatment. So as they allowed the Zionists to continue to build weapons and acquire weapons and import weapons from Czechoslovakia and the Soviets, um, who of course had a lot of sympathy for the Zionist project because it was a socialist project to a very large extent because it was built on ideals of uh, kibbutz farms and collective farms and all of that uh, stuff. And it still is, of course, it still has collectivist ownership of land. You don't have private property and land in Israel to this day. Uh, the Israeli Land Authority owns about 90% of the land. But in 1936 and 1939, Palestinian opposition was defeated by the British. And um, then from then on, it was just a matter of time. And then from then on, the Zionist movement, it was still very small. At that point, in 1936, 39, there was still a very tiny population of uh, Jews in Palestine compared to the Palestinians. So essentially, it was a very top-down affair because it was the British and the um, Zionist movement. But the vast majority of world's Jews, even those under uh, living under anti-Semitic regimes, had not moved to Palestine. It was after 1939 that things intensified, obviously because of World War II and uh, Palestine being away from World War II made it attractive for a lot of those uh, immigrants. And then that's when immigration intensified. But a very important point which you mentioned was that by 1948, at the time of the war, the Zionist movement didn't control any more than uh, 7% of the land, I think, uh, at that point. It was around 7%, right? Yeah, I think if memory serves, the exact figure was 6.8%. Yeah. There's a very important map here that we could share. It's a great website called palestineremembered.com. It's kind of like the Mises Institute for uh, Palestine. Uh, Let me share that. So if you look, this is land ownership in Palestine in 1946. And as you can see, as you mentioned earlier, all of these, um, all of the districts of Palestine, the majority of land ownership happened to be Palestinian. As you can see here, 68%, 87%. These are the areas that were to become Israel 
And Haifa was the place where um, Zionists had the largest amount of land, and that was 35% only. And still, Palestinians owned 42%, Tulkarim 78%, Yaffa 47%, Ramla 77%, Gaza 77%, and then around the areas that were to become the West Bank, it was overwhelmingly um, Palestinian-owned. This is in 1946, and then there's this other map from 1945, also very similar numbers that you see, very, very high concentration of land. So even though there was a lot of land buying by the Zionist movement, they still only owned something like 6 or 7%. So here's 1943. As you can see, the percentage of land ownership owned by Jews was 5.8%, whereas for Palestinians, it was 94.2%, and so on and so on. So you see... Uh, this conception that they came and they bought the land, I think, is um, completely mistaken. They bought a very small percentage of the land. The vast majority of the land was still owned by Palestinians. Right, correct. Yeah, and, and I, this, the 1945 statistics there, um, that, that's from, I got that from the UN report. I think that's in the UNSCOP report. Uh, and that's, I cite that in my book, Obstacle to Peace, those land statistics, as well as the, the 1946 ones that you showed, which it didn't change much in, in that year period. This idea that, that, that the Jewish community had just legally purchased most of the land. And, and so therefore they had a right to declare independence in May 1948 is just simply incorrect. It's just not true. Um, and of course, under in, in international law, one of the um, requirements of statehood is uh, legally defined borders, which Israel, you know, again, the, the, the neighboring Arab states didn't invade Israel in 1948. It's not logically possible for them to have invaded Israel because Israel didn't exist as a legally defined state. It was a unilateral declaration that had no basis in law. Um, there was no legal authority for that for that declaration that it wasn't Jewish territory. It wasn't, it didn't belong to the Jews. And of course there's the biblical argument that, that religious people make that, well, Jews inhabited the land, you know, 2000 years ago. But, you know, if you look at, <laughs> you know, I don't know, I, I, to me, you can't, it, to, to make a religious argument is not, you know, to me, I, I just have to reject a religious argument. And then you have to look at, you know, there's a the passage of time itself is kind of a, a statute of limitations on property ownership, and if you can trace, like many Palestinians can today, if you can trace specific title to a piece of property of an individual, you know, property rights belong to individuals. That's the key point. That's the key point, I think. And so, you know, if you can trace property rights, then then that's that's great, that's fine. And, and if if some if land was taken from a specific individual uh, unlawfully, then that sh that is a situation that should be handled through the courts, um, and justice should be done. But you know, so you you know, but there are it's it's not a situation where you can trace individual property rights back two thousand years, but you can trace individual property rights back to nineteen forty eight, in which you know by that time, uh, it, by May, I guess I mentioned over a quarter million um, Arabs had already been ethnically cleansed by the end of the war. In 1949, 750,000 um, Arabs, which was most of the population, had been ethnically cleansed. Over 500 villages were literally wiped off the map to create the demographically Jewish state of Israel. 
um, which again, to this day has no legally defined borders. Yeah. It's the only state in the world that doesn't define its borders, which is a very, very important point. We're going to get to, but first I want to go back to this, uh, idea that, um, well, Jews have a claim to the land because they were there first, which I find completely absurd because all over the world, there were, the, there is no piece of property today that is, or there's no country today that is inhabited by the same people that have been inhabited forever. The people, even if it's the same people genetically, they have different identities. They were part of different groups. They've moved around. Humanity's been around for a very long time and people have moved around. And of course, there's no legitimate basis for property claims for groups. Nobody says, well, I am a Hun and the Huns owned Germany 2000 years ago or whatever. And now all of you Germans, please make your way out. Uh, it's it's time right. for us, the Huns or whatever, to take it over. This notion that um, you can identify with a group that existed in the past and then you can come, and the fact that that group was there before the current group allows you to overrule their existing property rights is completely absurd. It's something that nobody would accept anywhere in the world. Only way that you can have a system of property rights, the only way that we can have civilization, and this is this is really the the overarching theme of my book, Principles of Economics, my third book, is that all civilization is built on property. If we have property rights, we can have all of the nice things that we develop as human beings. You could say, I, I think if I were to make a, a one-line advertisement for my Principles of Economics book, it would be the case for civilization from first principles, starting off with people um, just on a deserted island why we come up with the idea of civilization and how it comes about and what is necessary for it to happen. And what is necessary for it to happen is for us to accept the concept of individual property rights over physical objects, over land, and over self. And to the extent that we respect property rights, we can develop civilization. And to the extent that we violate each other's property rights is the extent to which we go back to being monkeys swinging our feces at each other in the jungle. That's really a, a, um, a very concise summary of 420 pages of Principles of Economics, which I write in that book. And it's a very Misesian idea. And so property rights are individual. And so in 1930s, in 1920s, the 1940s in Palestine, there was a system of property rights. It wasn't perfect. There were a lot of lands that were not privately owned, but there were a lot of lands that were privately owned. And it was a system that was accepted by Jewish immigrants, and it was a system that was accepted by the Zionist movement. The Zionist movement came in and accepted that system and bought land under that system. So they accepted the legitimacy of property titles that existed there. And the idea that you could just overrule that because 2,000 years ago, we have a link to it, I find absurd. And also, I think the um, even if you were to accept it, which you shouldn't, and I'm not accepting it, it's also extremely absurd because genetic analysis shows that the Palestinian population is actually closer to the old Jewish population that lived in Palestine than most of the European Jewish immigrants who established the Zionist movement. And this is borne out by modern DNA analysis. And it's true, it's something that uh, uh, sorry, uh, David Ben-Gurion himself said. He said the Fellahin, which is their word for the Palestinians at that time, the peasantry of Palestine are the descendants of the ancient Jews. Because when the Arabs came in, uh, in, in around 700 uh, AD, 
this is a key thing that Arab invasion of Palestine was not a population displacement. There weren't Arab farmers that came from Arabia and displaced the native Palestinian farmers and took their land and kicked them out or massacred them. They they replaced the Byzantine owners of the land, the Byzantine rulers, not the owners, but they maintained the population. And they uh, maintained, they gave people the right to remain Jewish or Christian. And so very famously, uh, Omar, who was the Muslim caliph at the time, he went into Jerusalem. And uh, this is very famous that he um, met with the Christians and he told them, look, we, we are here, we're going to secure your persons and your property. We are here to secure your person and your property. We're not going to violate you and we're not going to destroy you. We're not going to take your property. And um, he built a mosque right next to a church. And this is, I think, they're still standing that there was this synergy between the mosque and the church. So there was no displacement of the population. Uh, over time, a lot of that population converted to Islam. But there was, and, and of course, some Arabs did move to Palestine. So genetically, modern Palestinians are predominantly uh, from the local ancient populations, some of which were Jewish and some of which were not Jewish, but the ancient populations of th that existed in that land, as well as some Arab DNA, as well as some European DNA, some African DNA. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a melting pot. Uh, it's the original melting pot. So there was a lot of intermixture. But, and of course, none of that should matter to property rights. Property rights are individual. So there's no that there's no way of establishing a sane system for property rights that's built on DNA analysis. And so you come up and, you know, we dig up a bunch of old bodies from 2000 years ago. We see their DNA and then we run around and we test everybody and whoever scores the highest gets most property. That's no way of having a civilized society. Civilized society is built on individual property rights. And that's what we had in Palestine before 1948. And in my opinion, my very libertarian uh, slash Palestinian opinion is that, the conflict is entirely about property. If we didn't have these violations of property that started with the Zionist movement in the 1940s and that were amplified by the establishment of Israel, because what Israel did is not just that they kicked out the population, not just that they denied them the right to come back to their property, I think even more egregious, and what continues to make this a big, bigger problem, is that they denied, they denied uh, and the existence of a... Uh, they prevented the existence of a free market in land in Palestine. And that's the real issue. So that there is no free market. You can't just go and buy a land because the land is owned, almost all owned by the government. And so Palestinian refugees, like my wife, her family had a house in Yaffa. They can't go back to it. There's no amount of money that she could buy it with. She, it doesn't matter how much money she has. There's no way that she can buy it. But if she converts to Judaism... She can go there and she could get the house or a similar house and get it given to her at a subsidized price just because she claims to be part of that religion. So this is no system of property rights. And this was the point that I kept making in my debate with Walter Block, who's uh, you know an Austrian economist and a libertarian and an anarchist on everything except when it comes to that. And I think um, that was just the knockout punch that he couldn't recover from in that conflict. So he's famous. Uh, he's, he's kind of a shock jock libertarian to the way that's absurd, where he's just always going on about privatize everything. He wants to privatize the oceans. He wants to privatize the space. He, uh, he wants to privatize everything except for the land of Palestine, where he believes that a government agency owning 90% of the land is 
uh, the solution. But I find that completely indefensible. Yeah, and completely inconsistent with the libertarian principle of non-aggression. Um, you know, he, he has written a paper along with um, Rafi Farber and Ellen Fuderman, uh, both of whom I, I debated Rafi Farber on the Tom Woods show uh, on the legitimacy of the origin of, of Israel. And then um, just this last month, I debated Ellen Fuderman on an article he and Walter Block wrote in the Wall Street Journal, um, where they argued that Israel is justified to do, quote, whatever it takes, unquote, to, quote, completely destroy, unquote, Hamas in Gaza. And, uh, and and I argued the negative that no, Israel does not have a right to commit war crimes in Gaza. So yeah, I'm familiar. With, and they, they had written a paper um, some years back, maybe 2016 or so, <clears throat> arguing the libertarian case for Israel. Um, but that, that paper is essentially a hoax. They, you know, they, they cite false claims like that Palestine was an empty land and Arabs only came to, you know, only immigrated to, to Palestine. The, the Arab population grew because of immigration, because they wanted to take advantage of the economic benefits from the Jewish immigration. It's all just it's this nonsense, just ahistorical hoax type claims, um, where of course it's just it's just completely false. The Arabs were the majority. Most of the, the increase in the Arab population was natural increase, whereas of course most of the increase in the in the Jewish population was was in mass immigration. Yeah, and they, they try to defend, they, first of all, they try to deny that ethnic cleansing occurred. Uh, in that paper. But then they also go on to say, and there's a footnote to that where they say, well, even if it was the case that that the Jews ethnically cleansed Palestine, they had a right to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so this this is his position. And so like, yeah, it just, it's completely, I, I just can't imagine how he can try to reconcile his libertarianism and the belief in the non-aggression principle with his views on Israel and, and Palestine. It's, they're completely irreconcilable. He can't, and he, I think he completely and uh, irredeemably discredited himself uh, with that idiotic book that he wrote, um, because it's, and, and it's built on a completely, the, the entire argument of there were no Palestinians there is built on this other completely idiotic book called From Time Immemorial, written by Joan Peters, yes. which was completely mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> comprehensively destroyed devastated by Norman Finkelstein when he was a graduate student at Princeton University. Um, Norman Finkelstein has destroyed a lot of people in his career, but he started off by destroying Joan Peters. And this book lives on in Zionist mythology. You know, idiots like Walter Block and what's-his-face, that uh, lawyer guy, uh, Dershowitz. They, yeah, Dershowitz, yeah. They Dershowitz. treat this book as if it is... Uh, um, as if it is gospel, but it is, um, it's completely discredited. It's uh, made up sources. It's um, the, all of, the, I, I'm trying to get Finkelstein uh, to come on the podcast here to discuss this in depth. But yeah, all of the claims in it are completely ridiculous. But then again, even if they were, it still doesn't make the case for ethnically cleansing the Palestinians, which is something they cannot deny. And even if they want to deny it, it doesn't make the case for why are Palestinians barred from even going back to their homes when, if they weren't ethnically cleansed, why are there so many millions of Palestinians in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Egypt, who are not allowed to return to their homes and their land? But yeah. Yeah, and, and that's an, another important point because it, you know, you have this situation, you know, Israel portrays itself as David against this Arab Goliath, you know, it's surrounded by all these Arab states. But the situation is precisely the converse of that, where you had the Palestinians who were essentially 
a defenseless population, especially after the Arab revolt and, and the British disarmament of, of Arab militias while the, while the Zionists were arming themselves. And the Zionist movement was supported by by the West. And the Soviets. <laughs> you essentially had, not just the West, the Soviets. Yeah, yeah well, it, that's right. Not just the West, also the Soviets. Yeah, it had very wide worldwide support. And you had a situation where um, the United Nations, after the, the armistice uh, agreements were, were reached in 1949, um, and despite UN Resolution uh, 194 pointing out that the Arab refugees had a right to return to their homes, um, which Israel rejected outright, um, but the UN admitted Israel as a, quote, peace-loving member state with extreme prejudice to the rights of the Palestinians. And so the UN essentially sanctioned the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, and it admitted Israel as a member state, despite Israel not even meeting the, the, the requirements of, of membership, starting with the fact that it had no legally defined borders, which was one of the requirements, that it had to be a state, and to be a state, it had to have legally defined borders under international law. So it didn't meet that requirement. It obviously was not a peace-loving nation. It literally came into existence by ethnically cleansing the native population, and that it had to commit to you know, the, the principles of the UN Charter, which it was manifestly refusing to do. And, and of course, all the member nations recognized this, and yet they still voted to, to admit Israel as a peace-loving member state, which was ludicrous. And I make the argument in, in my book, Obstacle to Peace, that that, uh, that was actually that, that resolution by which Israel was admitted. It was actually illegal, null and void for the aforementioned reasons. Um, but it, it, it demonstrates the extreme prejudice against uh, Palestinians' rights. So you had the British belligerent occupation to deny the Palestinians the right to self-determination within five minutes of the uh, Zionist leadership unilaterally declaring the existence of the state of Israel. You had Truman in, in the United States um, recognizing this state, despite no, again, despite not even any idea of what, where they're even claiming their borders to be, because they didn't define what, where the borders were. There's just this concept of Eretz Israel, which is like this greater Israel that they, they that Zionists sought and still seek to establish. Uh, and then you had the UN acting with extreme prejudice, starting with, you know, with the partition plan resolution, which was entirely inequitable. And then the admission of Israel as a, as a peace loving member state, when obviously it's, it wasn't peace loving and it was absolutely rejecting um, the principles of the UN Charter and international law. So just, it, it's extreme prejudice from not just the West, from, from many, um, the, the global community against the Palestinians. And so you have this. The, da the true David and Goliath situation is that the David here is the Palestinians, the helpless, defenseless Palestinians against virtually the, the, the whole world. Yeah, and I think the um, a very important point, which is also missed, is the idea that in 1948, the, the Arab armies, you know, the, the mighty armies of Jordan and Lebanon and Syria and Egypt attacked tiny little defenseless Israel is, first of all, it's uh, not true because they did not attack the areas that were part of the partition, uh, that were allocated to Israel as part of the partition. And in fact, Avi Schleim has written a book called Collusion Across the Jordan, I think, uh, across or on the Jordan, across the Jordan, I think it was called. And and, and, and it was, it, it shows that the, the Jordanians were, uh, they coordinated with Israelis uh, that, look, we're, um, we're going to try and settle differences of borders on the battlefield, but 
we're not going to be able to. There was no, and we're not, and we do not intend to drive you out in any sense because that was completely outside of the realm of possibilities in terms of just military capabilities. The Zionists were heavily armed by the Soviets and by the Europeans. The Arab armies were novice armies that had just been established, and they had very little in terms of supplies and weaponry that could take on the Zionists, and they did not attack the areas where the Zionists had a stronghold. So there was no. And there was no illusion about the idea that uh, we could, all of this talk of we're going to drive them into the sea and we're going to get rid of them and all of that. All of that came in 1967 with the crazy socialist regimes in 1967. But in 1948, it was monarchies and it was reasonable people in Lebanon and Syria that they, they hadn't gone completely batshit socialist yet. And so there was none of that. Um, we're going to drive them into the sea. And none of those militaries or made any serious incursions into the areas that were uh, assigned to the Israelis in terms of partition. They were trying to maintain the land that was given to Arabs in the partition. And they were trying to stop the ethnic cleansing of these lands. And if they hadn't intervened, the Zionists might have actually even ethnically cleansed Gaza and the West Bank from their population. So to their credit, they may have um, kept the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza out of the hands of Zionists, at least until 1967. But there was no idea of, of taking them out because just the, 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 the balance of power was heavily in favor of Israel. These were amateur armies, the Arab armies, and they... They didn't choose this fight. They weren't even um, really uh, well prepared for it. They had to do it because there was a lot of pressure on them because their Arab cousins were getting massacred. And it, it was, to an extent, humanitarian intervention. Uh, we, we had a genocide and neighboring countries wanted to step in to prevent their cousins from getting genocided. But the interesting thing here is that 1948, Israel could have declared its borders and you know, finish the war, win the war, declare the borders, and say, "All right, these are our, our our borders." But they did not. Interestingly, and they have not until today. Why do you think that is the case? Well, because I I don't think they were satisfied with the territory of what is today Israel, which between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, it kind of excludes in, in terms of international law the occupied Palestinian territories of the West Bank and Gaza. I mean, their aim is to acquire all of that land, and as the Zionist aim has been from the start, to acquire as much of the land of Palestine as possible without the Palestinians. Um, and so this is why you had the ethnic cleansing. Uh, it, it, the ethnic cleansing was required, in, in, the, in the words of Benny Morris, the Israeli historian, you know, without the expulsion of 700,000 Palestinians, the, the Jewish state of Israel could not have come into existence, and therefore it was necessary to expel them. You know, this is this is the thinking. So he's a he's a phenomenal um, historian, Benny Morris, but he's also a, a Zionist. He's an ardent Zionist, and he's an apologist for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. But this this is the thinking, and, and there there was subsequent expulsions of um, villages. So twenty percent of Israel today is. Um, there's Arab citizens of Israel, and it's only 20% precisely because of the ethnic cleansing that occurred in 1948. Also, there were additional expulsions of villages between 48 and 1967. In 1967, when Israel invaded and occupied the West Bank and Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, there was an additional expulsion of 300,000 Palestinians, which is what the, the Palestinians referred to as Al-Naqsa, which was the setback. 1948 ethnic cleansing, and they call the Nakba, which is the catastrophe. And ever since 1967, there's been this slow, gradual ethnic cleansing um, of the West Bank. 
um, with the illegal occupation and settlement regime. And most recently, the, the, the ethnic cleansing and genocide in, in Gaza. They want the land. And I, I, the reason I think that they didn't define borders or declare borders when they declared the, the you know, when, the, when they unilaterally declared the existence of Israel was precisely for that reason. They weren't satisfied with the, the, the land that was suggested for them under the partition plan, just like they weren't um, satisfied with the 1937 Peel Commission partition plan. Um, and they're not satisfied with the two-state solution that has um, been favored by the international community since uh, at least the early 1970s, premised on um, implementation of UN Resolution 242, which requires Israel required Israel after the 1967 war um, to fully withdraw to the pre-June 5th armistice lines, the 1949 armistice lines, also known as the Green Line. They're not they, they're not satisfied with those borders either, which is why Israel has always rejected the two-state solution in partnership with the United States um, under this so-called peace process, which is the means by which Israel and its superpower benefactor have always blocked implementation of this two-state solution. So that, that to me is why they didn't declare borders and, and still haven't because they're not satisfied with the amount of land that is under their full control um, and they want more, but without the Palestinians. That's the tricky part. And so they- That's the uh, tricky part. Yeah, so they couldn't just declare it. I think if you wanted to make the uh, most, if you wanted to steal man the Zionist argument, you'd say they couldn't declare it because back then in 1948, they didn't own all of Jerusalem and they wanted all of Jerusalem. That would be the most generous interpretation that they still wanted to capture mm -hmm. Jerusalem but I think a more realistic interpretation is that they wanted uh, the West Bank, which is Judea and Samaria, which is historically, in their mind, the most Jewish part of Palestine, um, which mm. uh, is pretty ironic because when the European migrants came, they settled near the coast yeah, because that was the area where the land was more cosmopolitan and it was easier for them to settle and it was easier for them to acquire land, whereas in the hinterland, it was away from the coast. It was not very... Uh, developed and it wasn't very easy for them to acquire land there so zionist settlement happened around the coast so they still wanted to get the west bank and of course gaza as well because that doesn't hurt but then there's there's an even more generous interpretation of their ambitions which is if you look at the israeli flag there are two blue lines there i mean a lot of people say this is not true and i'm I don't know what to make of it myself, but what do you think? Uh, some people say this is the Nile and the Euphrates, and uh, historical Israel, the God's promise land is from the Nile, which is in Egypt, to the Euphrates, uh, Euphrates River, which is in Iraq. And that's currently the home of about 100, 150 million people or so, which is going to be very tricky if you wanted to set up uh, a country there. What do you think of that? Well, there's certainly. Um extremists in Israel who hold that view, who think that all of that land is there. So they're not just limited to historic Palestine, but Lebanon, the tr you know, what was called the Transjordan, larger parts of Egypt. Um, yeah, they view that as all Eretz Israel, the, the greater Israel. Um, and so I, I, how much the influence of that type of thinking, it, it, you know, how much that influences government policies, I, I can't say, I don't know, but certainly, certainly there are Zionists who believe that all of that land rightfully belongs to, to, to Jews. Yeah, that's certainly there. But I, th I think for the most part, in terms of government policy, I think it's just been more of a, a more limited aim of trying to take over all of historic Palestine. 
and kind of, you know, acceding, okay, there's this other state called Lebanon, we're going to have a border with Lebanon. There's a state called Jordan, we're going to have a border with Jordan. There's a state called Israel, Egypt and Syria, and we're going to have borders with those states. But but essentially, if they can take over the West Bank, and, and it, this, this brings up the disengagement plan under Ariel Sharon, in which um, in 2005, Israel withdrew its military forces from from Gaza under what was called the disengagement plan. So they kind of had, had given up on Gaza in terms of settling it and, and t- in basically controlling that and, and, and settling it. Um, and so they just kind of turned Gaza into this, what Jura Island called the, the huge concentration camp um, and kind of be, to be able to shift the resources from Gaza to be able to uh, advance the occupation settlement regime in, in the West Bank. And so I think in terms of government policy, they had, they've had more limited aims in, in controlling and taking over the land of historic Palestine. But certainly there is there are those who believe in this greater Israel that, that exceeds those borders. Yeah, indeed. All right, so then 1948, we've covered that now, and then that rolls around. And then after 1948, of course, uh, um, migration to Israel increases, and uh, the demographic pendulum swings decisively in the favor of Jews because a lot of Jews come in, and of course, in 1947 and 1948, a lot of Palestinians were expelled. I think, uh, well, maybe we didn't really cover that one extensively. The ethnic well, yeah. Uh, there's another point there. If I could make that even, you know, reading the uh, UNSCOP report, the UN Special Committee on Palestine, which was the commi- commission that came up with both a majority um, recommendation for a partition plan and a minority recommendation for a single democratic state with equal rights, you know, guaranteed under the Constitution. But so if you read that report, they say right in there that even within the area of the proposed Jewish state, unless you excluded the Bedouin population, that Arabs would even remain a majority even within the area of the proposed Jewish state. And then they also talked about the problem, the the remaining problem of land ownership, which was a reference to how Arabs actually would still own more land even within the proposed Jewish state. So those are another couple of um, facts that are are worth mentioning as well. As well as like you've mentioned how, how most of the, most of the conflict actually took place you know, in the areas that would have been in the area of the proposed Arab state. And in fact, the, the strongest um, element in, in terms of the, the Arab armies was the, the Jordan, the Jordanian army. And they had basically had this kind of, um, whether explicit or, or at least implicit uh, agreement with, with Israel to, to not do more than just protect the West Bank. I mean, they had no designs on, like you mentioned, they had no aim of, you know, pushing the Jews into the sea or something. This is all a historical nonsense. They, they had essentially said, okay, this is the best we can do is to try to um, prevent this ethnic cleansing from, you know, from um, entering into the area of the West Bank. And so they kind of held on to that territory and kind of had this implicit, if not explicit understanding with Israel that they were going to try to go further than that. And so that, yeah, this idea that, you know, that the Arab states invaded Israel to wipe it off the map, it's just, it's just not true. Yeah, and I think uh, this was why the war between the Jordanian military and the Israeli military was not so brutal. There, there weren't that many victims because th- there was ground for compromise wherein, all right, you get roughly the partition and we get roughly what became the West Bank. And then we will have a few skirmishes around there, and particularly the most contentious, of course, was um, East Jerusalem, 
So there was a possible, there was a bit of balance of power that imposed itself. It was very difficult for Israel to take over the West Bank because there was a very heavy concentration of Palestinians and very, very few Jews. And there was the Jordanian military. So it made sense for Israel not to pick a fight there and to concentrate on taking their gains. And similarly for the Jordanians to concentrate on the land that they could keep in the West Bank rather than uh, the whole thing. Right. One very common myth, which um, which uh, somehow continues to live on, is this idea that the Arab militaries told the Palestinians to leave their homes. And so since the Arab militaries told the Palestinians to leave their home, and, and the idea is, well, well, just don't worry about it, leave your house, and we're going to come in and throw the Jews in the sea, and then you'll be able to come back home. And that somehow that basically cancels the Palestinians' right to property in their land. Um, that's obviously false. There's never been a shred of evidence at all that any Arab military issued such a call. There was not a single Arab military, Arab leader, Arab radio station that has ever said anything like this. Nobody ever told the Palestinians to leave their homes. To the extent that maybe something like this had happened, it was Zionists who had issued these calls and told the Palestinians that this was the case. But whether it was the Zionists who did it or not, even if it did happen, that does not override anybody's uh, property rights, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, this is something that I've looked into, like trying to find, you know, you hear this claim and like, well, what is the origin of that claim? And, you know, you can read, for example, Benny Morris's book, 1948, um, Ilan Pape's, another Israeli historian, Ilan Pape, um, his book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. And at best, these refer to a situation where, you know, Arab authorities had had warned the population, civilian population, in in certain Arab villages and towns, that you know it, it's best to probably flee um, so that we don't undergo massacres like what happened at Deir Yassin, where Jewish terrorist organization had gone in and committed this massacre. And, and so there were a number of massacres that that occurred during the war, <clears throat> which of course the Zionists used to frighten the populations. Of um, of other Arab towns and villages, you know, spreading rumors, um, true and and not, whether true or not, in some cases there, there were were true massacres that occurred, and and the, the the knowledge of those massacres were spread by the Zionists themselves in order to frighten the population into fleeing their homes. There were also outright expulsions, and and as I mentioned, um, you know, the the ethnic cleansing operations began right after the partition plan in, in late November 1947. But those became essentially, in April of 1948, um, they essentially became formalized with, with what was called Plan Dalet, or Plan D, which just described the method of, of expelling Arabs from, from their villages. And the um, kind of the operative criteria for the Zionist commanders to kind of have some exercise, some of their own judgment in terms of of, of whether to allow um, Arab villagers and citizens to remain or to expel them. So, for example, if there was any resistance at all, the, the they were to be expelled. And so, you know, the, the, there was an operative plan and a military policy of expelling Arabs from their villages. And if they didn't completely acquiesce, acquiesce to um, Zionist control of their land and their territory. If they put up any resistance whatsoever, um, the, the policy was expulsion. And so this this was this was the operative plan of the Zionist forces. 
Um, and so, yeah, the, the denial of the ethnic cleansing and the claim that, oh, well, you know, the Arab leaders told them to flee. So and, and, and like you said, even if that had been the case, well, they still had a right to return to their homes. It's an internationally recognized right of refugees to return to their homes upon the cessation of hostilities, which Israel has always rejected for Palestinians, of course, not for Jews, who, who as you mentioned, with their policy, you know, a, a Jew from, with no connection, no historical connection whatsoever to the area of Palestine can can go and become an Israeli citizen and in, in, in an own land and property in Israel, whereas uh, Palestinians ethnically cleansed from their homes are not allowed to return. Yeah, this is this is really the um, this this is the most indefensible of Israeli um, policies by far, which is the idea that no, there's no room for the Palestinians to return. However, we will grant the right of return to anybody who comes up to Ben Gurion Airport and says, "Hi, I'm Jewish," and I mean, there's clearly no DNA test that you could do that will prove a link to uh, the original Jewish inhabitants of the land 2,000 years ago. And even if you could, that would be an absurd way of uh, assigning nationality. But anybody can convert to Judaism anywhere in the world and return to Palestine. And there are a lot, well, not a lot, but there, there are more Jews around the world than there are Palestinians. And somehow... There's no room for the Palestinians to return to their homes, but there is room for the Jews who have no link to Palestine whatsoever to return. And this is the absurd thing about the law of return. And this is why, I mean, ultimately, I think the the solution to the conflict is obviously, it seems so incredibly difficult to imagine it now because of the amount of hatred and blood that is shed. But realistically, if you really wanted to be practical about it, you just allow Palestinians to return to their homes, allow private property ownership, regardless of ethnicity. And that's pretty much 90% of the problems solved. I think the fanatics on the Palestinian side would be completely undermined in that kind of situation. The idea that you'd want to engage in terrorism and that you'd want to target civilians. If you have the right to own your land, if you have the right to buy and sell your land, that would just completely undermine all of those things. And the fact that it doesn't is just, in my opinion, it shows that the real problem here is Zionism as a political ideology. That's that's the real issue, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there's this claim that, well, Israel can't, for example, Israel can't withdraw from the West Bank because it'll just turn into a, if Palestinians can exercise sovereignty in the West Bank, they'll just mass an army and, and then they'll invade and try to destroy Israel. Well, this just completely overlooks the fact that Palestinians have legitimate grievances. And if you reasonably address those grievances, those grievances go away. And so the Arabs have no reason, the Palestinians have no reason to go on, uh, you know, in a state of hostilities with the Israeli government if they didn't have their legitimate grievances. If it wasn't a situation where they're, where they're living in an apartheid regime because Israel is trying to take over more and more of their land and to have this gradual ethnic cleansing of the West Bank. You know, if they didn't um, try to keep enclosed in a huge concentration camp that, that is known as the Gaza Strip, also frequently referred to as the world's largest open air prison, you know, if they weren't trying to, if they hadn't, if they weren't maintaining a 16 year blockade designed to collectively punish the civilian population of Gaza, you know, if, if these grievances were addressed, there, there would be no reason for hostilities. This is the point. It's just that, that if people, the, the reason they have 
legitimate grievances is because their rights are being systematically violated. Their fundamental human rights are being systematically violated by a violent regime that has always aimed from, from its inception at dispossessing them and disenfranchising and violating their rights. And so if the, the violation of rights were to cease, if they were allowed to exercise their self-determination, if they were allowed to exercise their right uh, to return, um, you could have a situation where there would be peace. And so there's this, this goes back to the, the false claim that the root cause of the conflict is just inherent Arab hatred of, of Jews and anti-Semitism, which is just completely false. And that's designed to try to whitewash the fact that they have legitimate grievances going back to the mandate era. And so the if we really want to understand the conflict and the resolution to it and the path forward, we have to understand that the true root cause of the conflict is the is the the violation of their right to self-determination and their property rights. Absolutely. And I think, you know, before Zionism came about, before 1948, there had been a continuous presence of Jews in Palestine since uh, the Roman times. I mean, obviously during the Roman times, there was a mass exodus of Jews because of the Romans, not because of the Palestinians. But since uh, then, still some Jews remained and the population there had lived there and under the Ottoman Empire throughout the 400 years in which they were um, ruling over Palestine, there were uh, they had the millet system, which was a system wherein any community had the rights to run their own civil affairs by their own religious rules. And so the Ottomans, for all of their faults, and there were obviously many faults about the Ottoman rule in Palestine at that time and in the region overall, but they offered people the freedom of practicing their religion's beliefs and being able to run their affairs according to their own religious beliefs. So Sunni Muslims had Sunni Muslim courts and they had Sunni Muslim authorities that uh, enforced Sunni Muslim statutes on their population. Christians had the same thing. Jews had the same thing. The Druze population had the same thing. And there was essentially coexistence between these. So it's it, it, it's absolutely mind-boggling to imagine that 400 years of Arabs, and at that time Jews considered themselves Arabs as well, 400 years of Jews, Arabs, Muslims, Christians, all living together largely peacefully, definitely much more peacefully than European Jews had uh, lived. I mean, this is very, very well established that Jews had a much better time uh, in Muslim countries, including Palestine, Muslim predominant countries at that time, than they did in European countries. And the problems started with Zionism. The problems started with the idea that this needs to become a national homeland for one part of the population, which was a tiny minority in 1917. It was less than 10% of the population in 1917 when the Balfour Declaration was created, was made. And then, you know, all of a sudden, this inherent Arab uh, racism and anti-Semitism awakens. After 400 years of slumbers, finally they, coincidentally enough, just decided to start becoming anti-Semites out of nowhere for no reason, completely inexplicably. Right. That's essentially what the Zionist narrative wants you to believe. And of course it isn't. There's a very, very big elephant in the room, which is these people woke up one day in 1917 and found, hey, the British are saying, this is not going to be your land anymore. This is going to be a land for only 5 to 10% of the population right now. And everybody else is just going to have to take a hike out of this country. And 
I I ask people, imagine if it was Hindus or if it was Protestant Christians or if it was Catholics or if it was any other religious group that had decided that they wanted to establish a homeland in Palestine at that time. Do you think Palestinians, the rest of the Palestinian population who don't belong to that group, the non-Catholics or the non-Protestants, do you think they'd still be anti-Semitic today? <laughs> do you think they'd be out there trying to fight uh, Jews, hating Jews, blowing up Jewish uh, uh, institutions? Or do you think they'd be fighting the entity that is out there repressing them? So clearly there are legitimate grievances there. And it's just the amount of propaganda that's been directed at whitewashing the crimes of Israel, whitewashing the crimes that have been done against Palestinians, are is so powerful that it's allowed people to arrive at this point where well, what is wrong with those people? Clearly, it's all inexplicable, just bigotry and racism and anti-Semitism. Well, and this speaks to the role of the, of the Western media, because you have the Western media reporting on the conflict through the lens of Western governments, who have always, since the inception of the movement and, and of the state of Israel, have supported the Zionist project of dispossessing the Arab Palestinians of their land and denying them their, their fundamental human rights. And so you you have essentially those of us in the West, we you know here in the United States, you know from the time we're children, we're just kind of taught and inundated with this Zionist propaganda narrative of the history of the conflict from you know pre nineteen forty eight in the Mandate era right up through you know through nineteen sixty seven through the peace process you know for example and and you look at the nature of the media's reporting. They'll say things like, well, the, you know, we hear there's this line that Palestinians have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And, and throughout the peace process, and particularly at Camp David, the Palestinians rejected an offer of statehood. Well, this is utter nonsense because, and, and the, the Israelis have made concessions, we're told. And uh, they describe East Jerusalem as disputed territory. So just the, the language that they use is wholly prejudicial to the rights of the Palestinians. So the, the description of East Jerusalem as disputed, for example, or the West Bank as disputed territory. Well, it's disputed from the point of view of Israelis in terms of what they want. But the proper framework for discussion isn't what either party wants necessarily. It's what both parties ha- are legally entitled to, what, they, what they're entitled to under international law. And under international law, East Jerusalem is not disputed territory. It's occupied Palestinian territory. And under the peace process, the only concessions, again, from the point of view of international law and the applicability of international law to the conflict, the only concessions ever made always and ever came from the Palestinian side, starting with the acceptance of the two-state solution by the PLO, the official acceptance of the PLO um, by the PLO of the two-state solution in 1988 was a, a huge concession on the part of the Palestinian leadership, because they were they were consenting and acceding to establishment of a Palestinian state in just 22% of their historic homeland. That's an incredibly huge concession. And yet we were told that they were the ones who were intransigent and they were unwilling to compromise and unwilling to accept these offers, these generous, supposedly generous offers. So Israel's offers during the peace process and, and at Camp David were ultimatums for the for the Palestinians to surrender even more of their rights. And this is what we're supposed to believe were concessions on the part of Israel. But Israel's concessions throughout the peace process were negative. 
And all of the concessions always came from the Palestinian side. So it's just, and, and this is just, uh, you know, speaks to the point of the nature of the media reporting and how they frame things in describing territory is disputed, in describing, you know, if Israel is willing to not get everything that it wants, that, that that's a concession. When the proper framework for describe, for understanding that is, is not what Israel wants, but how does international law apply? And so the reporting is, is extraordinarily prejudicial against Palestinians' rights. And, and the reason for this is, as you know, the, the media, um, U.S. mainstream media, fulfill the function of manufacturing consent for criminal government policies. This was the case with the Iraq war, which is kind of how I got started doing journalism, speaking out against the war and, and saying, you know, that the, the government and the media are lying. There's no, no evidence that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Um, they're lying to start a war for a regime change. So I was just, I was just witnessing how the media were reporting that and, and just seeing how that they were fulfilling this propaganda function in service to the state. And so you have this this fundamental role uh, of the media where they serve uh, this propaganda function, which was really brilliantly um, expounded on in in Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's book, uh, Manufacturing Consent, the Political Economy of the Mass Media, which is where I, I, I borrow the phrase from, manufacturing consent. And they were, of course, borrowing it from, from prior writers and Walter Lippmann, who had described the function of the media uh, um, and the role of the media to manufacture consent for government policies. Um, and so you have the situation where most of what people think they know about the conflict just isn't true. You know, like they, like the, their belief that the UN created Israel, you know, the belief that uh, the belief that the 1967 war, there was a preemptive strike by Israel because nobody disputes that Israel fired the first shot of that war. This war started in the morning of June 5th with a, with a surprise attack and on Egypt, destroying most of its air force while its planes were still on the ground. There's no dispute that Israel started that war. Um, but but it, we're supposed to believe that it was preemptive, that that there was an imminent I- invasion planned from um, that Jordan, Syria, and, and Egypt had this, uh, you know, there was this imminent threat of invasion. Even that is just as a flimsy pretext. I mean, on, on, for, first of all, under international law, we also were told that the Iraq war was a preemptive war. Well, under inter- international law, the, 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 the idea of a preemptive war um, is equivalent to the crime of international aggression. If you look at the the history of the 1967 war and the events that led up to it, so first of all, you had the movement of troops into into the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt moved tr- troops into the Sinai, um, and of course, that is we're supposed to believe that that was evidence that they intended to invade. But if you look at the CIA, what they had told Johnson was that the the Egyptian forces had taken up defensive positions in the Sinai. And they told Johnson that if, if war was going to outbreak, which it appeared that it was going to happen, it would be started by Israel. And they also told Johnson that that Israel had such overwhelming military superiority that they were they were going to defeat the combined Arab armies within a week or two. And it took six days. Um, you also had the um, the expulsion of UN peacekeeping forces from Egypt, which the, the propaganda narrative were told. So this this proves the Egyptian intent to invade Israel. But there's context missing from that, which is that prior to that, Israel had been raiding villages in the West Bank and, and particularly infamous was the attack on a village called Samu, which the purpose of was simple um, collective punishment of the civilian population of that village for, uh, there was a, a mine attack uh, on an Israeli jeep along along the armistice line, which um, supposedly was carried out by Fatah, which is uh, Today, the party of 
uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas um, at the time was, you know, in the, the party of the organization of Yasser Arafat. And so there were these reprisals against civilian populations in, in the West Bank. And so Jordan was criticizing uh, Egyptian President Nasser um, for hiding behind the UN peacekeeping forces. And Syria, too, is also cr critical of Egypt for hiding behind UN peacekeeping forces. Um, so Egypt kind of kind of was safe from these types of reprisals while, while you know, in the West Bank, uh, which was under Jordanian administration at the time, there were these reprisals going on. And so it was a face-saving measure on the part of Nasser to, ex to expel the UN peacekeeping forces. And the proposal, this is a key point, the proposal was made to restation those forces, the UN Emergency Force, UNEF. Into the onto the Israeli side of the border. Well, guess what? Israel rejected that that offer and that proposal. So, what does that tell you about Israel's intentions? Also, Israel had already invaded Egypt in 1954 in the Suez Crisis. Israel had conspired with France and Great Britain to wage a war of aggression against Egypt. Um, Britain wanted to try to re regain control of the the Suez Canal, and Israel wanted to gain control of the Sinai Peninsula, which which it had done. And so you already had a, a situation where Egypt had uh, had suffered aggression uh, by Israel. Um, and so, and then you have, um, after the war, you know, Menachem Begin had said, you know, just publicly saying, you know, we have to be honest with ourselves. You know, Egypt's movement of troops into the Sinai, Sinai don't prove that, that Nasser really intended to attack us. We have to be honest. We struck first. <laughs> We're the ones who started the war. Um, and so it, it, we have this whole it, point being there's this whole propaganda narrative about that being a preemptive war. And first of all, there's under international law, there's no such thing as, as preemptive self-defense. If you're being attacked, you have a right to defend yourself. But you know, this idea that you can imagine this threat against yourself and then and launch an attack on another nation, well, that, that's synonymous with the international crime, uh, the supreme crime of, of, of aggression. Um, and secondly, even if there had been such a, a situation, you, you know, well, there, there wasn't. I mean, you, they they try to every point they try to argue to say that there was this plan uh, by the uh, combined Arab armies to invade Israel. Like, if, upon further scrutiny, all those claims just fall apart. And so, it, it wasn't a preemptive war. <laughs> Um, but this is just another aspect of the whole propaganda narrative that that we're told. You know, the, the myth of the UN creation of Israel, the myth of this preemptive war in 1967, the myth that the the goal of the peace process was implementation of the two state solution, when in fact that the peace process was premised on rejection of UN Resolution 242. It was it was premised on the U.S.'s acceptance of Israel's unilateral interpretation of that resolution, which was a rejection of its true meaning. Which, under international law, only the 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 the, the only uh, legitimate interpretation of that resolution is the intent, the, the explicit intent of this UN Security Council. And if you go back to the meeting records of UN Resolution 242, the intent, the explicit intent, it was absolutely explicit before the vote took place. The understanding of that resolution was that it re it required Israel to fully and completely and immediately withdraw all of its forces to the armistice, to the pre-June 67 lines. Um, but Israel has its own pr uh, unilateral interpretation of that resolution where it's not required to withdraw from the occupied territories. Israel's interpretation is that the people living under its occupation must negotiate with the occupying power over how much 
of their own land that they'll be able to live in and maybe exercise some limited measure of sovereignty over at some point in the future, while the occupying power continues to prejudice the outcome of said negotiations with its continued occupation and settlement regime in the West Bank. And this is the, the unilateral interpretation that the U.S. accepts as the basis for its so-called peace process, which is what I mean when I say that the, the whole U.S.-led so-called peace process is the means by which Israel and its superpower benefactor have long blocked implementation of the two-state solution. So the, a two-state solution, as described under the peace process, is, is, a, is a rejection of the two-state solution grounded in the applicability of international law to the conflict. Yes, um, that was a, a very good and uh, powerful way to sum up <laughs> the period between 1948 and today. I mean, obviously, there's a lot there, but I think you really uh, covered this very well. I think you covered uh, the, the main issues there. I think it's, um, I mean, what's going on today is obviously enormously tragic, and I think it's... Um, it's very difficult to see any hope because um, things just continue to get worse and worse. And I, what I find absolutely horrific is just the extent of um, hatred that, that is becoming normalized. So I grew up in Ramallah and, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I, I threw rocks at Israeli soldiers and uh, I, I saw one of my friends get shot in front of me. Uh, he lost his eye. I've gone through that i've gone through this experience of really living the conflict very vividly i've seen i've had cousins killed i've seen uh, all kinds of things happen i've seen houses demolished and i've seen lands get stolen and i've managed to come to the conclusion that really the the only way out of this is a one-state solution is just to move away from this notion that we need to have move away from this completely destructive idea that it's us versus them it's them versus us it's either us or them we have to drive them into the sea or they're going to drive us to the sea one or the other or and it's it's unfortunately becoming more and more predominant so i spent um you know after i went to university i developed this idea that no i i think the only way out of this is to just have a state with everybody there and i still think of this as the solution i think uh, i i don't want to kick anybody out of their home, even um, Israeli settlers in the West Bank. Um, I don't think that it would be just, you know, uh, most people in the West, when they say, well, I support the creation of a Palestinian state in West Bank and Gaza, but obviously the Palestinians reject it. No, you don't. Like, you think you do because you watch TV and you just repeat the stupid things that your TV tells you to repeat. But do you support a million, almost a million Israelis now in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, do you support kicking them out of their homes? Many of them have been there for decades. Do you really support them? that? Do you really think this is a realistic possibility? Do you think the Israeli government is just going to one day say, all right, time's up, let's give the West Bank to the Palestinians, give them a state over the West Bank, and we're going to make a million Jewish refugees move from the West Bank to Palestine. It's not going to happen in, in any kind of meaningful way. There's no way that Israel is going to do that or accept it. It's politically impossible. It's politically suicidal. And also, I, you know, I, I don't believe that these notions of international law are um, sacrosanct. I don't want to kick people out of their homes. And I think if we do this, it's not going to be a solution. So uh, it's only going to make things worse. So for me, what I would view as the solution is very simple. Everybody stay where they are and 
everybody gets to live there and we just move toward the libertarian order in which property is free. Anybody can own property, anybody can buy, anybody can sell. And we separate ethnicity from property rights. So you can have your property regardless of what religion you're in. And the government isn't out there maintaining property only for one religion. And I think that would also include right of return for Palestinians who were expelled in 1948. And this is something that I believed for quite a while. It's not realistic in any meaningful sense at this point, I feel, though, because it's becoming increasingly, increasingly bitter and uh, increasingly terrible. And it's, you know, I've, I've always thought I had this uh, this optimism, you know, the, the the optimism of youth that you think that as everybody has this idea that by the time you grow up, the world's going to be more like you want it to be. That when you're young, the world is not as you want it to be. But by the time you grow up, the world will have changed to what you want it to change. And it's been a very bitter pill to swallow to watch the world become less uh, like you want it to become. I thought, you know, I, I, I'm a 1990s Palestine kid, so um, I grew up into this world in which Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shook hands in the White House and signed a peace deal, which was unimaginable for my father's generation. Um, this was just never going to happen. And I remember at that point, things were looking up and uh, Palestinians and Israelis had started developing some friendships and relationships and uh, business in particular. And business was uh, booming. And, you know, if there's money, if there's business, if there's uh, trade, if there's commerce, people learn to start liking each other. People learn to start tolerating each other. And there was hope that, yeah, things are bad now and um, things are terrible, but within a decade or two, by the time, you know, by 2020 or so, people will have moved on. Technology will have uh, made Rabin and Arafat sound like extremists. And we'd look back at them as being extremists. And today we'd be able to live together. Muslim, Christian, Jew, atheist, um, Druze, everything in all of these countries and uh, in, in the same country. And we'd be able to live peacefully together. And yet... Um, looking back today, uh, Rabin and Arafat look like uh, hippies, basically, compared to the majority of the people that live in Palestine and, uh, and Israel today. Uh, sadly, I mean, the Israeli government, uh, one of the ministers of the Israeli government, uh, Ben Gvir, he was uh, in, uh, he celebrated the murder of Rabin in the 1990s. He was part of the political parties that were threatening Rabin with assassination and then they celebrated when they assassinated him. He personally had stolen a uh, sticker that Rabin had on his car and he went on TV and he brandished it and it was an attempt saying, look, we know where you are and we can get to you. We can take things from your car and we can kill you. And now that's that's the mainstream uh, view in uh, in Israel. And it's um, and, and I think, obviously, with Hamas and the, the way that they're uh, acting, you see the, the, the mirror image on the other side. So all of this depressing uh, diatribe is uh, to try and uh, ask you the final question for today is, um, is there any 
light at the end of the tunnel? Is there any reason for anybody to be optimistic? Is there any way to see things get better within our lifetime? Well, I, I, I wish I had reason for great optimism. I like you. I, I share your view that, you know, to me, the ideal, the, well, really the only solution is for, for people to get along and, and, and respect each other's equal rights. Um, but they did, like you said, the chances of that happening seem increasingly small. And I used to kind of, when I wrote Obstacle to Peace, I wrote in there um, that, that while I shared the, the vision of a, a one-state solution, you know, I felt it had to ha- happen in stages. And so my thinking at that time, which, which that book was published in 2016, was that first, you would have to have an implementation of the two-state solution, which effectively just means an end to the occupation. Israeli Israeli withdrawal, and I, and I, and I said in there that that doesn't mean that you know the residents of Jewish settlements in the West Bank would need to leave; they can choose to leave if they want. If they don't want to live under uh, inside of a Palestinian state, they're, they're free to leave if they want, or they're free to stay. And you know, and with without prejudice to property rights, so that if you know Arab villages were destroyed to, to make room for Jewish settlements, you know there would have to be some kind of recompense for for those types of injustices and and you know that would have to be dealt with the courts um and and it would have to be it would be a complicated process but in my mind it it could be done and then following the establishment uh, of implementation of the two-state solution which effectively means israeli withdrawal from from the occupied territories then there would need to be moves toward respecting the rights of palestinian refugees and the right of return and so it, but through those two stages, to me, the end result would be basically a, a single state, especially once you, if you, if the refugees were allowed to return, what's the point of having two different states? It's, it's you, because the population within Israel itself would be largely, if not majority Palestinian at that point, if, if the refugees were allowed to return. And so you could just eliminate those borders entirely and you'd have a single, single state. And so I, I kind of share that that vision um, right now, you know, in terms of incremental steps toward the goal of of peace. I mean, you have to you have to address the grievances, and so you know the, the, there has to be an end to the blockade of Gaza. You can't go on collectively punishing 2.2 million people in the, in the Gaza Strip. So, but what are the odds of of that happening? It, it, so, to me, the the only glimmer of hope I see in terms of just trying to have an optimistic outlook and how is it possible? Is it, we have to be, we have to reach a point where it's no longer politically feasible for the U S government to support Israel's crimes against the Palestinians. Um, so for example, is, the U S support for Israel's genocide in Gaza, including um, blocking efforts to pass a ceasefire resolution in the security council, this type of policy just needs to stop. You know, the U S arming, Israel to be able to execute what amounts to the crime of genocide. And when I say genocide, I'm not, I don't use that term lightly. I've never used it to describe any, I didn't, I've never described what happened in 1947 through 1949 as a genocide. I've always used the term ethnic cleansing, which is a different crime. Um, I don't use the term genocide lightly, but you have to look at what Israeli officials themselves have been saying is their intent in Gaza. And it's absolutely genocidal in intent. And they're following up their, those words with actions. And so just at this point, with the current Israeli government in power, especially, and there is a huge peace movement in, in Israel, you know, um, you, you look at, and just looking historically at, at some of the, the, the most outspoken critics of Israeli government policies have been Jews, including Israeli Jews, I mean, including Orthodox Jews and who are anti-Zionists, as we've discussed. 
so that there, it's not as though in the same with the Palestinians, you know, not, not, not all Palestinians are Hamas and they don't all support Hamas. And you have to look at how did Hamas come to power in Gaza in the first place? It was precisely as a direct consequence of Israel's policies. And it's in, in Netanyahu has been quite explicit about using Hamas as a strategic ally to keep the Palestinian leadership divided precisely, precisely to prevent any movement towards any kind of negotiations over a peaceful settlement. This is his policy. And so as long as you have leaders like that in power who are like, they don't even want to try to negotiate some kind of resolution. They don't even, they, they don't even want to have talk. It's just, we're going to, it's just might makes right. We're going to, we have all the power. We, we have the, the Gazans consolidated over here in this concentration camp and we're kind of just ignoring them. And, and Hamas is doing its, its job there, keeping the Palestinian leadership divided between the PA and the West Bank and, and, the, and, and the Hamas in, in Gaza. And that, that's the policy, that's the goal. And so to me, and this is it, I think Israel is able to maintain its policies of systematically violating the, the human rights of the Palestinians only because of U.S. support. I think if it wasn't for U.S. support, it couldn't go on. It wouldn't be politically feasible for Israel to get away with its crimes with impunity. So it's, it's the U.S. support that grants Israel that impunity. And so I think that's where our focus needs to be. It needs to be on on changing the U.S. policy and making it politically infeasible for the U.S. to to continue these policies. And so hopefully, if, if anything good can happen out of what's happening currently in Gaza, it, it will be an, an increased awareness of the reality of the true nature of the conflict and, 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 and you know, a destruction of this myth that the U.N., uh, the, I'm sorry, that the U.S. is some kind of like a um, neutral mediator and honest broker in the conflict. And people are going to see that how the U.S. is, and in fact, you see, see this already. And here's a glimmer of hope. You, you look at um, Democratic support for Biden in terms of his response to the crisis in, in Gaza, and, and there, they half of Democrats disapprove of, of what he's been doing, and it's precisely because they recognize that that what's been happening in Gaza, you know, that Israel has been committing war crimes minimally, you, you know, without even getting into the discussion of of um, the intent to commit genocide, you know, the discussion of whether their actions uh, uh, amount to an act of genocide. Um, but, but certainly, uh, you know, the policy of deliberate use of disproportionate force to brutalize the civilian occupation, the denial of humanitarian aid, the denial of food, water, fuel, the deliberate targeting of hospitals, schools, schools where Palestinians were taking refuge, um, UN run schools. Um, you, you know, th th this this is a deliberate policy of, as Israeli officials have claimed, of trying to make Gaza uninhabitable. It's in plain sight. It's just happening right before our eyes. And so it, it can't be hidden. You, you can't, no amount of propaganda can just like conceal this fact of what's happening. And my hope for optimism, my, my one reason for optimism, because I'm trying to I do try to remain optimism. I don't, I don't want to say it's hopeless, but it's just like, how do we get there? What is the path? And so the path that I see is that there's an awakening in the United States among we Americans um, as to the true nature of the conflict and the true nature of U.S. support for Israel and what that means. And so that is the, the one hope I see, that we can affect a, a paradigm shift just in terms of the perception of the conflict and people awakening to how they've been propagandized and how they've been deluded into false beliefs about what the conflict is, what what are the root causes of the conflict, and and what it would require for there to be peace and justice. Um, so to me, it's it's um, 
you know, overcoming what I termed in, in my book is titled obstacle to peace. So that is to me the greatest obstacle to peace. And that's what we need to focus all our efforts on, on overcoming. Um, that to me is the one um, hope that I have in terms of just trying to remain optimistic and, and um, seeing a path to a peaceful, just resolution. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I also share your pessimism. One very common theme in this podcast is that whatever episode we discuss, we always end on a note of Bitcoin fixes this. I hate to admit it, but this is going to be the um, the toughest one to pull off because I'm always, I always really believe that Bitcoin fixes everything, and we'll discuss issues like energy problems, food problems, all kinds of issues, and I can draw out a very realistic way in which Bitcoin fixes things. It's difficult to try and make this case today, but I will say. If I if I wanted to really be optimistic, I'd say a big part of this conflict has been the the belligerence of Israel that has been facilitated by foreign powers, Britain, the Soviet Union, and then uh, Britain initially, and then the Soviet Union, and then the U.S. And this has allowed for the worst elements within the Zionist movement to always uh, triumph against the more reasonable elements. And so in the 1920s, I think even if you read Ben-Gurion in the 1920s, there was an element of, look, we're going to have to compromise and uh, get along with the local population and we need to ensure that things, we're going to have friendly, friendly relations with the Arabs. This was this was pretty. Um, I mean, there were also the you know the Jabotinsky strand, which understood that conflict was inevitable, that we have to drive them out, and they'd spoken about this since the 1920s. But at every stage, I think the more reasonable perspective on Zionism, you know, the, the cultural Zionism, the religious Zionism, the idea of Zionism as just a, a spiritual uh, migration to the land of um, Israel rather than a militant attempt to reshape the demography of the place and ethnically cleanse people. All of these reasonable and um, non-aggressive, non-violent uh, ways of establishing Zionism were always undermined by the support of what you call dishonest brokers from abroad. And the only reason those dishonest brokers can get away with what they do is the fact that they have giant money printers. And, you know, we saw this last month when Hamas attacked the uh, area around Gaza and Israel mobilized, they were able to get $14 billion just like that from the US. And you had three aircraft carriers move to the Eastern Mediterranean. And it was just a checkmate to anybody in the region who would have thought about intervening because Israel was very clear about what they wanted to do. And you're right, you know, they're, they're, they're definitely not going after Hamas. I think that the notion that they even care about Hamas at this point, I think is is, is a very, very tenuous claim because I think they want Hamas to survive. They want Hamas to be there because the longer Hamas survives, the more destruction they can do to Gaza, the more unlivable they can make it. And this is the key thing. This is what they want. The real goal here is to destroy as much of Gaza as possible. And so now they've split Gaza into two. They've destroyed the northern part completely. And I think, I mean, you can make all of these arguments about uh, Hamas was in this building and it was in that hospital and it was under that school and it was in this. 
but it wasn't under every single building, and yet they've destroyed practically every single building in, in the north of Gaza. And the reason for that is that they want to make it uninhabitable. They want the Palestinians in Gaza to leave. That's the real goal. And the world understands this. And I mean, unless you're an American watching CNN, watching TV stations, you you can see this. You can see the destruction. You realize this isn't conflict. This is just completely different from anything that we've seen. We, you know, the, the number of children that have died in a couple of weeks exceed the number of children that died in Ukraine over a year and a half. So it's just... Exceeded the number of children annually from 2000. 2021, 2022, in all of the other world's conflicts combined. In just the first three weeks of Operation Swords of Iron yeah. in Gaza. And the amount of destruction that's happened to civilian infrastructure is clearly, clearly not driven by the attempt to take out Hamas because it's obvious that the plan is to make Gaza uninhabitable. And you just need to listen to Israeli officials themselves. That's what they're saying. And that's what uh, right. Israeli supporters are sharing. You know, the memes of them when turn Gaza into a parking lot, turn Gaza into a football field, make it unlivable, drive them out, move them to Egypt. That's that. Yeah. That's the plan, and that's all mm -hmm. um, only feasible. I mean, Israel is a small country, and it uh, takes a lot of bombs to destroy the homes of two million people, two point three million people. It's not something that can be easily done. But it's made possible when you have the support of an endless fiat money printer. And I think, you know, beyond just the kind of tribalist instinct that might be obviously um, animating anybody at this point that, you know, we, us versus them, I think people, if, if you're able to just step back for a second and think, if this money printer didn't exist, doesn't matter what team you're on as if this is a spectator sport, which is what it is for the vast majority of people around the world who follow it, who are not affected by it, who just follow it like a spectator sport. If there wasn't a money printer, this would be a lot less violent of a spectator sport. And it would create a lot more opportunities for people to think reasonably. We just don't have the mechanism for making conflict so bloody without these money printers. And I think I mean, I don't know. I think it's it's it, it might be too late at this point because the way that it's going, I mean, they're doing it in the West Bank and I think the next step, they're doing it in Gaza and the next step is to do it in the West Bank. They're clearly trying to provoke as much reaction. And I, I think the template's been set. Um, it'll take one operation out of Hebron for them to do something similar with Hebron. It'll take one operation out of Jenin to do that. And then one by one, they'll reduce the number of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza drastically. I think that's the plan. And I think it's, uh, I, I mean, the realistic part of me says Bitcoin's uh, maybe too late to fix this, but we can always hope. Who knows? Yeah, I, I, I try to mean hope in humanity. You know, I hope someday humans will become civilized and we'll have something that we can reasonably call civilization. Um, it's just that right now, uh, it's, we still live in an age of barbarism and, um, fortunately there are those of us who, <laughs> who recognize, um, what it means to respect human rights and to have civilization. And, um, we just need those of us who, who favor civilization over barbarism, um, just need to speak up and speak out and keep working and not give up. Um, and, you know, so we have to maintain hope. Otherwise, you know, we are surrendering to 
barbarism. And, um, so we, we have to fight, we have to fight. And that means, that means maintaining hope. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, like you said, if, if they couldn't fund it, it couldn't go on. So there is that, like you said, it might be too late. Um, but we have to keep fighting. Yeah. Some of us don't really have a choice. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that, um, note, I guess, um, our time here is up. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for your time. Really appreciate it. It's truly an honor. Thank you for having me on. Uh, can you tell us more about where people can find you on the internet and what you are up to on the internet these days? Yeah, head to jeremyrhammond.com. That's where you can find all my writings as well as um, my books. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter. I send out uh, lots of good content in my newsletters that I don't publish necessarily. So there's exclusive content um, for, for subscribers in addition to all the articles that I write that I send out and other information. So jeremyrhammond.com is where people can find me. You're also on Twitter, right? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, I have a Facebook page and I'm on LinkedIn. I also have uh, accounts on, on other platforms, but there's not a whole lot of engagement and activity on, on the other ones. So my, my three main ones are Twitter, LinkedIn, and, and Facebook. Excellent. Yeah, we'll be posting the links in the show notes. Thanks again, Jeremy. Thank you. Cheers. Have a good day.